which is just a stone's throw away, um, worldly speaking. Have you always lived in Ryslip? Uh, yeah, apart from going to university in Bournemouth. Uh, Ryslip is, I listen to a Ryslip girl every Friday night, Fern Cotton. <laughs> Ryslip's most famous citizen. She always bangs on about East Coat and Wembley Market and Prism Nightclub, which is just over there as I look. So, um, so your weather has been exactly the same as mine. Did you swelter on Friday in the heat? Uh, I did a bit, to be fair. Obviously, it makes a difference to the rain, so like, I'll take it. It was horrible on Saturday and then um, it's kind of doors open today it's hot 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 but it could be worse we could be in East Asia segue when (laughs) when Asia welcomed the world I spotted it in the wild I saw it it does exist it does so the issues are being released um, towards the end of this month Uh, I've got my copies already and if I may so say so myself, they do look brilliant. It's a Duncan um, owner. He knows what he's doing, Duncan. He is Mr. Pitch. Yeah. If you, it's like a Storm Thorgerson Pink Floyd or Yes cover. It's a, there is a unified pitch design. It's got the little logo, the Duncan owner cover. It's very well proofed. There is a, there's a whole team, and I'm not here to mention my book from Kids to Champions, which does mention West Ham. Don't worry. You can have it. So if you grew up in Ricelip, why West Ham? My dad took me to games when uh, I was younger. He was originally a West Ham fan. You know, it's one of those where you just end up going for the team that your dad supports. I mean, he had to work fairly hard to completely convince me. But, um, you know, after going to Upton Park for a few times, you know, I just found it magical there and... That's one of the reasons why I wrote my other book about the final game at Upton Park because, you know, that stadium obviously means so much to me and it's actually a large part of the reason why I support West Ham. What a berserk spectacle. I was listening on the radio when Five Live wasn't about banter, so about five years ago, and it felt amazing. All I've written is just cars on the pitch. Uh, This was the, the farewell to the Berlin ground, Berlin's farewell, uh, which is about the swan song season, which was fifteen sixteen. Uh, yeah, so the book itself actually focuses mostly on the one game, and it just goes into really, you know, really detailed about the day. So literally, the travelling to the ground, the food and drink that you could obviously get in and around the ground. Ken's cat. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, sadly, closed down now. I believe, if I remember That's correctly. That's such a shame because that. Sorry, if I can interrupt you, uh, Pete May is someone whose work I've read a lot and he used to meet his older mates at Ken's Caf. So I feel that I know Ken's Caf, even though I've never been. But of course, even though, is it right that fans would visit it and then go on to the Olympic Stadium? Uh, they did for a while. So what? So basically, when we first left, a lot of people tried to, because obviously, you know, a lot of the businesses pretty much relied on match days to keep going. And that move is why some of the loved businesses that we had around Upton Park have now shut down or, you know, they've had to move somewhere else or something like that. So when we first left, they, I think people were aware of the fact that they were relied upon by these businesses. So they tried to do it. But I feel like after time, it obviously sort of fades and maybe people stopped having that tradition to, you know, cut down on time or whatever. Yeah, I remember getting on a, a train 
to meet Dad because we went to, you may have been at this game, West Ham Bournemouth. It was the weekend of my, I think it probably was 2018. And I remember meeting Dad at Stratford having got on the train. There were tube delays. so It took me around the houses or one station wasn't open. It was a nightmare. But the point is, it was, I was meeting West Ham fans who had got off or got on at Canning Town or at East Ham. And so they were trying to duplicate it. It's a long, long way. What would you do? Would you go Finchley, change on Finchley Road or Baker Street? Um, so what I usually do, if I'm going to Stratford, I'll walk to West Rysip Station. So then I can go all the way through without changing. Of course, yes. On the sweaty, sweaty Central Line train. But I guess yeah. you meet lots of people who are West Ham through and through on the way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially when, obviously where I'm also a freelance journalist now, um, I watch a lot of games at home and report on them. So I don't get to go to West Ham games as often as I'd like. Uh, but when I do, uh, you obviously, obviously end up uh, speaking to, you know, sort of EastEnders. And when I was a season ticket holder, because at Upton Park I was a season ticket holder for 11 years. Wow. So, you know, you'd really get to know about the traditions of the club and the area as well and just how special you know the place and the club and just everything about the area was to these people is one of the traditions coin throwing um i personally wouldn't say so i can't say i've ever done it okay well Um, it must have been an interloper because i went to west town watford we were hopeless we were just useless uh ziegel are especially and uh i looked down and there was a 10p coin there. And I went to the steward. There's a coin that's been thrown. And he said, you can't stand there. So I, I don't think I'll follow as an away fan at the London Stadium. And it takes all sorts, etc. But riddle me this. Why aren't David Sullivan, David Gold and Lady Brady, who might well be at Birmingham by the time this goes out, getting praise for the last season? It's all down to them that they've done so well, West Ham. I think a lot of West Ham fans would say that it's despite them rather than because of them. There have been a lot of times where they didn't really want to dip into their pockets. And I think, you know, obviously some people will say, like, West Ham fans have too high expectations. But I think one of the things that, you know, West Ham fans really focus on is the lack of a striker being signed. You know, we obviously sold uh, Sebastian Haller all that time ago and haven't signed a single senior striker since when that's been an obvious area that needs improvement. I guess, well, I know that another side of it is that, um, you know, when we first moved into the Olympic Stadium, you know, it wasn't exactly a smooth transition. Um, You know, when I went to the early games, you could, you know, see all the seats from, you know, we sort of had this vision of maybe naively of the stands being moved forward but what it turned out it was is scaffolding being put over the existing stand and when you first went in that first season for however long you could actually see the scaffolding and the seat so it wasn't just aesthetically pleasing Mm. shall we say yeah um but i i definitely get where other fans are coming from because you know we've obviously done well in europe And, you know, I guess there is a definite argument that the money that they've put in has helped. And I will say that, you know, the whole thing with the stadium, while I'll obviously have Upton Park in my heart and 
I'll always personally prefer that. Um, you know, you can definitely see that improvements have been made when it comes to the stadium, in my opinion. And, um, you know, that it's a very exciting uh, time for the club. I mean, you know, we've obviously signed uh, Nayef Aguer today, who seems like a very exciting signing and have been linked with a few other players ahead of having our second consecutive European season. So, me personally, uh, I'm certainly not complaining. Yep, you've upgraded the left-back on the striker. Antonio and Bowen. Bowen's got an England cap. I think Antonio's declared for Jamaica. Yeah, Bowen is sort of, you know, obviously he can do it, but he's incredible on the wings. Yeah. So if he does have to be used as a striker, it almost feels like a bit of a shame because, you know, it obviously takes away from his natural game. Would you say that uh, having a number nine is part of the, you know what's coming, don't you? The West Ham way. Um, I mean, I guess so. Um, for me, the West Ham way is more about the style and the attitude rather than certain positions. But, you know, it obviously helps, especially, you know, where we, we've always wanted exciting players. And I guess, you know, if you're looking at any position that creates a lot of excitement, number nine is probably up there. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the West Ham way, having a natural striker would help. Yeah. I will say that, you know, obviously part of the West Ham way that some, in my opinion, that some people from other clubs probably don't realise is, you know, that sort of work rate and the desire and, you know, the willingness to give absolutely everything that you've got for the club and the team and the fans and everything. And Mikel Antonio definitely has that. I don't think, for me personally, it's not a case of, you know, we need a striker that means we're never going to play Antonio again up front. It's that we need a striker who can challenge him and that Antonio can also challenge so that there's a bit of genuine competition. Because, you know, even if Antonio had five, six, seven games where he was absolutely rubbish and completely ineffective, you'd be 99% confident that he's still going to play the next game, which... You know, I don't think he has done too often, but the fact that it could happen still isn't great when you know, you're trying to have these lofty aspirations. Yes, well, I think West Ham may have hit the ceiling, although never rule out West Ham. This is the club that won England the World Cup. More Peters and Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, the book was Berlin's Farewell. It sits alongside Daniel Hurley's books. Daniel has written one. I had him in the football library, which is where you, Danny Lewis, are now. And you get your football library card and we know who's going to be on it more in a sec. But Daniel Hurley, have you read that book about the, the Tevez Mascherano or actually really the Tevez season, 2006-07? I have bought it. I haven't got round to reading it yet because where I've obviously written these two books, I found that for quite a while, instead of taking in what these other writers were uh, putting down, I was sort of almost interrogating it, trying to find mistakes where that had obviously gone into my thinking so much. So I've decided to take a little bit of a break from reading books. I'm going to get back to it soon because obviously it's been a while since I had the editing process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're very lucky because you're in the football library. We've got books upon books upon fanzines. And there is one book that is going into the library in November. And it's a lad from Canning Town. How much are you looking forward to the memoir... It comes out in November 
of Mr West Ham. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, you know, obviously, for me personally, um, so I started watching West Ham in 2002. Uh-huh. Mark, Mark Noble made his debut in 2004. So that sort of obviously says about his longevity and he became an absolute hero of mine. For example, when I was younger, I was lucky enough to um, be mascot for Tony Roberts's testimonial at Dagenham and Redbridge, which was against West Ham. I asked Mark Noble for his shirt and uh, he wasn't allowed to give it to me, but because um, it, it was a training shirt or something like that. And bearing in mind, I was only like, maybe eight or ten or something like that at the time, he rubs my head when he said sorry. And for me, that was enough. Like, I, I didn't want to wash my hair because, <laughs> you know, Mark Noble rubbed it. Obviously, I did. <laughs> my mum made me the yeah. same night. But, um, you know, just the fact that Mark Noble rubbed my head was enough. And then, obviously, everything that he's gone on to do in that time, you know, some people will say that, you know, he's not the best footballer. I've found myself standing up for him in many office debates when I did work in an office but um, yeah I absolutely love Mark Noble so I'm looking forward to seeing it obviously obviously because you know so much has happened as well it's not like it's just I love Mark Noble so I'm going to like seeing the book there's so much stuff that he can give real insight into so yeah yeah, I'm really looking forward to this book I only found out it existed the other day I think it'll be better than Micah Richards book uh, which we know why it's being published. It's because he's going to be one of the faces of this World Cup that, well, I'm not going to watch. Are you going to watch it? Are you going to have to watch it? Uh, definitely. I'm hoping to be working on it in some capacity. The, not in, well, I mean, if the, the chance came up to do it in Qatar, I'd you know, very much love to do that because World Cup and reporting on it has been my one of my dreams since I was about 15, if not earlier. Um, but I'll definitely watch it from home and, as I say, work on it. A lot of journalists do say, look, if you're going to get the opportunity to cover the football tournament for the international game, you're not going to say no, even if the stadia were built by slaves who had their passports taken away and were forced to live in cramped accommodation with very little water. That's just the truth. I'm with Eric Cantona, but bear in mind, Danny Lewis, that you have written widely for World Soccer, Copa 90, Snack Media. And also you did player ratings. I review albums and I don't give them ratings because the text should carry what I think of it. Um, but there are some albums which are... Why is this made? This has failed in, in its aims at cheering me up or making me sad. It's just not, not right. But ESPN, a very widely read website, and it will be covering this Qatar World Cup and the Nations League and... The Premier League. Whom will you be freelancing for next season? Yeah, it's quite obviously, uh, well, hopefully ESPN as well. Um, so there's Flash Score, who I do match reports for. Um, I'm a writer and editor for them, so that will be continuing. I've been doing some things with World Soccer, which obviously I, I hope will continue. I've really enjoyed working for them. I actually um, set myself a work goal at the beginning of the year and um, it was to be commissioned and published by World Soccer and 442 once each um, and I've got an interview with Tony Woodcock coming mm -hmm. out in 442 in the issue that's coming up 
uh, in, I believe it's released on the 23rd. So oh, in so a couple of days. It'll already be out by the time this goes out. So I will. Carrie Kane is on the front of this one, uh, to be fair, of the, of the moon. Um, um, so Harry Kane has been on uh, American chat show sofas as well. So this chat with Tony Woodcock in FFT and then World Soccer, uh, what have you had in that? So I did um, about Angel Di Maria. So these are all headlines. I've done uh, Angel Di Maria, um, Andre Yarmolenko after he scored against Sevilla. I did about how um, he's always had a knack of scoring big goals for West Ham, even though, obviously, he's not always been a regular um, and sort of tied in everything that's been happening in Ukraine. And then I did about Mark Noble upon his retirement as well. And in the latest issue, well, the one that's coming out um, soon, I've done about Canada. Um, John Herman. Yeah, um, I did about them in like leading up to the World Cup, and then when World Soccer do the big World Cup preview, I'm doing about Canada for that as well. You know, obviously I mentioned the flash school work. Basically, I realised that we'd be covering Concacaf, and I sort of made a decision that I wanted to try and pick a team that was outside of Mexico and USA because I knew that everyone would want to cover them and try to get as many games to do with them as possible. I sort of thought, you know, if I managed to have a little prediction and it turns out right, it could turn out, you know, it could prove mm. to get me some more work when the World Cup gets a bit closer. And most people were obviously raving about Jamaica, but I just looked at Canada's squad and I thought it looked so exciting that I, you know, I whenever I was putting requests in for games, I was always saying, can I get Canada? And luckily I got to cover quite a few of their games and I'd like to say it's not too luckily. I'd picked a team that ended up obviously doing brilliantly in qualifying and making the World Cup and then obviously I was trusted to to cover them for the previews, which again is an, another thing that, you know, obviously growing up having watched World Cups and you know, pretty much every single World Cup that I've watched, I think I got the preview from 442 and World Soccer to try and see what was going on with all of the different teams. So to now be in one of them is pretty massive for me. Yeah, Mazel tov. that's fab. And that is a very nice segue, which I will come to, leap out of, and then come back to. What happened on June the 30th, 2002? So that is the World Cup final where Ronaldo obviously put his demons to bed and won Brazil the World Cup uh, with, you know, one goal that had a slice of luck and then another nicer one. You will be delighted that Daniel Williamson, whom I'm also speaking to, Daniel's got a book out about the Intercontinental Cup, but he's writing one about the phenomenon, uh, phenomenon Ronaldo, as I call him. Other people call him Fat Ronaldo, which is reductive and baseless, and those people are idiots. Don't you find, and we've got a bit of time, don't you find football media consumers are mostly, mostly idiots? <laughs> uh, yeah, I suppose you can... You know what I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people see the world as very black and white and, you know, you're either completely agreeing with someone or 
you're completely disagreeing with them. Um, you know, obviously the Ronaldo Messi debate sort of encapsulates that, in my opinion. The answer's in Yester. Um, because <laughs> only one of them has scored a goal in a World Cup final. But yeah, I think the social media age has definitely contributed to that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do love the nickname O Phenomeno, but I always just went for Brazilian Ronaldo, which now I think of it is obviously a bit of a basic one, but you'll never hear me referring to him as Fat Ronaldo. Well, Ronaldinho was also Ronaldo. His name's yeah. Ronaldo, yeah. Yeah, and obviously I covered him in the book as well. There was obviously that goal that he... Um, the ball... Went over his head. Yeah, and um, yeah, researching that one was pretty tough because um, obviously I haven't mentioned yet, but when the 2002 World Cup happened, I was only uh, six years old. Yeah, that was my first real sign of football heartbreak, I'd say. But it was also, you know, I was also so just in awe of the Brazilian team that it was kind of... If we were going to lose anyone to anyone, at least it was against them. Yeah. And that's the tournament that sort of really ignited my love for football. So, yeah. And this book is When Asia Welcomed the World, which has a brilliant, brilliant cover. It's got the brilliant kind of East Asian font. I don't know. Do you know the name of that font? It's not Oriental, is it? The name of the font. Um, You know, as, as you mentioned, that was a... Duncan Olner special um, mm-hmm. I sort of you know said the players that I wanted and you know gave a few images that I thought could work but obviously he's the one that's put it all together and made it look as great as it does and it's not just that it's on a red background it's you can't miss it on the bookshelf and I really look forward I haven't read it yet uh, I just did some research based on a well-known encyclopedia but yeah to be six and watching that World Cup, I'll, I'll tell you where I was for the England-Argentina game shortly, but I just want to, before I forget, mention that you can read a piece about Frank Reichardt published on The Athletic, originally written for these football times. That must have been a thrill. So that sounds like a Jeff Shreves question who's got a book out as well this autumn, but yeah, you must have been thrilled by that. Yeah, um, you know, having an article on The Athletic was pretty massive for me especially because at the time you know I hadn't had a lot of the things that I'd had happen now and I feel like having that article you know first of all in the Football Times magazine which is obviously a beautiful magazine and then on The Athletic as well which is obviously such a you know well-respected website you know it was just pretty massive for me and it I think Having that name next to my name definitely helped me make some of the strides that I've made in my career. I think it's fabulous. I certainly um, breathed in. Have you done your interview with these Football Times to promote the book yet? I haven't yet. I'll have to um, sort it out. To be honest, it's all been a bit of a, a whirlwind. Yes. Just sort of- Please please let the listener know exactly how much of a whirlwind it's been in the last week. Yeah, obviously I've been doing my other work as well. I ran a competition to win a free copy of the book that unfortunately people won't be able to enter now because the winner's already been drawn. I've had people like DMing me trying to buy signed copies, uh, which people can do. Probably best to DM. So Danny Lewis underscore 95, because up until the 27th, so including the 27th, I've done like a 
it's sort of a pre-order discount. So where it will be £18.99 going forward on the 27th from before, it's £15 plus obviously postage and packaging. Um, so I've had quite a few people getting in touch with me about that. I've obviously been doing a few podcasts as well. Oh, which ones? I, a while back, I did uh, My Football Heroes. So they, um, you pick five football heroes and then you pick a villain as well. But the thing with the villain is they're someone that you can sort of appreciate looking back. Uh, so I picked Wayne Rooney for my villain because mm-hmm. I can appreciate what he's done with Derby. But when he was a player... He used to always score against West Ham, True. which did he was was the one that he got banned for when he when he started yelling. Was that not against West Ham? It might have been. That rings I know, that, you know, there was the one from the halfway line where he had Adrian sort of aimlessly running around his box trying to catch the ball. That I insisted and to this day insist shouldn't have counted because he actually pushed. Uh, James Tonkins when he went up to head the ball. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not better. Not a bitter hammer. Um, <laughs> I also went on um, Platini, played for Kuwait. From these football times, I've had Stu and Stephen and Gary and Adam. I've had the whole crew now. Um, Stephen will probably advise you to write even more books than you already have. But the book is When Asia Welcomed the World, which if you, uh, yes, Danny Lewis underscore 95, because that's the year you were born, because you're a child. And your, so your first World Cup was 2002. I yep. was in the school lecture theatre. Mr. Husbands had booked that, the lecture theatre at school. And we had, because England-Argentina was at lunchtime. It was a two o'clock kickoff because it was an evening kickoff in Asia. So I missed a lot of the games in that tournament. But I remember England-Argentina. And so we saw on a big screen David Beckham scoring the penalty with after four years after the effigy. Obviously, more things happened in that World Cup. Uh, what did you discover when you were going back through the match reports and the newspaper pieces that you obviously would have consulted to write this book? One of the things that I wanted to make sure I did was watch every single minute of the tournament. I had a feeling you would have done that, yeah. It feels like so much of it was you know, quite divisive and there were so many incidents where I wanted to watch them with my own two eyes. I wanted, I didn't want to rely on what someone else had been writing because, you know, there were so many different opinions and obviously people can put different slants on it. So, you know, if someone's reading a book with my name on and they don't agree with something that's said, I want it to be because, you know, I've watched it and... You know, it's my own opinion rather than a journalist from 20 years ago. Um, so, obviously, as well as doing my research and getting context and, you know, delving into some of the players and the moments and characters and all that sort of thing, I did watch every single minute of every single game. And, you know, there was a lot of rewinding and all that to make sure that I was getting the right players and all the right moments and putting it down correctly. So it, it was a time-consuming process, but I, for me, it's 100% worth it because I've obviously got that peace of mind that I'm relying on myself and my football knowledge and what I think rather than 
what other people are saying, which for this specific World Cup was very important. I remember, because it was a lunchtime kickoff UK time, the name Papa Booba Diop, which I hadn't heard of, um, suddenly entered the football lexicon. Uh, France Senegal was actually the topic of one of your these Football Times pieces, along with a very good uh, piece about Julian Dix, West Ham's adopted son, and Paolo Di Canio, perfect balance between passion and skill. Um, so I just wanted to mention those in passing, just before I forgot. But um, yeah, Papa Bouba Diop and the Senegalese celebration dancing around the shirt. Would you have remembered watching that? Because at six, your brain is forming lots of memories. Yeah, I mean, so when I first started, that was one of the things that I actually remembered. Like, if you'd have asked me before I thought of writing the book, I think Papa Bouba Diop danced around his shirt, Beckham scoring the penalty... Um, Sol Campbell's header against Sweden, the Ronaldinho Ronaldinho goal, the final, Rushdie Rekber just in general, like they were the main things that I remembered. And you know, I think it's funny because obviously that Senegal v France that was the very first game, game. of the tour. and I feel like it was almost you know up there with you know if you're saying top five games of the tournament in terms of its legacy, that's definitely up there because it was such a massive shock and there's obviously, you know, the history behind France and Senegal where um, Senegal were colonised and, you know, for them to go and win their first ever World Cup game against champions France who had obviously won the World Cup and European Championship, it was... It was just unthinkable. I mean, in my research, you know, it felt as if Patrick Vieira, who um, is obviously, you know, has his own links to Senegal, um, had completely dismissed them because he said, I hope an African nation makes it to the quarterfinals. Maybe Cameroon will do it. (gasps) Jesus! But he grew up with guys. Jesus, Okay. Yeah, so uh, he said that to uh, Le Parisien. You know, that kind of says it all about the fact that they then went on to beat them. So, yeah, that's definitely one of, not only one of my favourite memories that I had before covering the book, but it was one of my favourite games to write for the book because you sort of, you know, you obviously know that you're you're looking at history and something that was so monumental for a country. Yeah. Absolutely, for Senegal. Um, France, of course, the reigning world champions, uh, but they won't win Qatar. It's fixed. Brazil will win it. You can write that piece now if you want. It's completely fixed. Uh, although France might do well because Mbappe has been um, given lots of money by Qatar to effectively be their toy to show off or their bauble on the Christmas tree in December. Um, but we can't cover the political aspect of the World Cup because we're busy talking about when Asia welcomed the world, which, as this goes out on June 27, is out now, although I have seen it in the wild. Um, in the 86 World Cup, there were 14 European teams out of 24. How many European teams were there in the 2002 World Cup out of 32? Uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you that off the top of my head, but I do have quite an interesting stat. Um, out of the groups that had two European teams, only one of them saw both of the European teams fail to make it through. And that was 
Portugal and Poland in the same group as USA and South Korea. That is a good stat. Uh, the answer is 15 European teams, so it meant that each group had more or less two teams. Portugal were useless. What on earth went on? They went down to nine men against South Korea. They lost to the USA. But they have Rui Costa and Figo. What on earth went wrong? Yeah, I mean, that um, that USA game was incredibly strange to watch because uh, Portugal actually went 3-0 down. And then, you know, they obviously got one back. And uh, Jeff Goose, the American centre-back, um, he basically tried to clear a cross and in doing so just completely got the got it wrong and sent the ball flying into his own I net. I remember that, yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, the fact that they weren't able to get back was obviously very damning for them. I mean, the USA, I spoke about it recently on a podcast, but, you know, you talk about the, the shock stories of that World Cup, I think, because there are so many, people forget that, you know, there really wasn't much expected of the USA at all, yet they were narrowly beaten by Germany um, from a free kick that, in my opinion, was very soft. So, you know, they, they, they were another nation that really surprised me in a, in a very good way. Yeah. Uh, here's a quiz question you'll know. What links South Korea, Senegal and Turkey? What did they all do? I'll give you a clue. This was in the knockout stages. God, why has my mind gone blank? So they, I mean, they all won a game. <laughs> yes, correct. Uh, Two of them in the round of 16, one of them after extra time. What particularly happened gold, after extra time? Golden goal. Golden goal. Remember, was this the World Cup with the silver goal and the golden goal? I don't think there was a silver goal, but yeah, I do remember the golden goals. Obviously, Senegal, they had both sides of it as well because they obviously won against um, Sweden and then obviously lost against Turkey on Golden Goal, so it sort of showed both sides of it for them. It's brutal. And um, Spain and Brazil, the only teams to win three out of three games in the group stages. Spain needed penalties to beat Ireland. Uh, Germany beat Saudi Arabia 8-0. With regards to Spain, this was before the Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, PK team. But Spain did still have some wonderful players. Raul, I imagine, was the best. You know, at the time, they were sort of seen as perennial underachievers. You know, they came into so many tournaments with impressive sides and then just didn't quite manage to do it. And Raul was, you know, the the main star. But I really enjoyed watching De Pedro. I mean, obviously, you know, where I was six at the time, I didn't really remember him at all. But whenever I was watching the games back, he always seemed to be having some sort of impact. His crossing was superb. So, yeah, he he was my main one that I enjoyed watching. And um, with the Ireland game, you know, Ireland were, in my opinion, actually the better team in that game. And Spain were probably quite lucky that it got to penalties at all. I mean, Ian Hart had a penalty saved. They were hard done by against South Korea as well, though, because there was uh, Yakin had basically got to the line and he cut it back and Morientes headed it in. And that would have been a golden goal, like just a couple of minutes after the restart. But they said it had gone out of play when it blatantly hadn't. So, um, 
So yeah, they they obviously felt quite hard done by there, and Helguera had to be like held back from confronting the referees. Well, we know what would happen in the Qatar World Cup. This will be the the first TikTok World Cup where moments will go live, and it'll be a not. I'm not watching it, but we're not talking about Qatar today. Uh, when I spoke to uh, Chris Foley, who is a, an Ireland fan, he when I asked him what was the name of the island that Roy Keane had a duck fit on. He instantly knew. But not many people would know. I guess if you... Uh, do you ask people where the Irish base was and they don't know it's Saipan? Because a lot of people call it the Saipan instant. So I think it's more... People might not realise that it's actually an island. I mean, they might just think that it's like in the mainland of yeah, Japan yeah. or something like that. I think the name itself sort of is enough to send shivers down Irish spines. Did but, he have um, a point, though? Well, how did you see the Keane-McCarthy duel? Whose side were you on? Um, you can definitely see where Keane was coming from. So, I mean, I read Mick McCarthy's book about the World Cup as part of the research as well as this. And even in his, you know, he, he admitted that things were just going terribly wrong. The pitches were appalling, apparently. They, they basically had, like, crates that had everything they needed from LucasAid to match balls to whatever else, training kit, and it just didn't turn up. And, you know, as a perfectionist as Keane is, you know, he's not exactly going to be a fan of that. And I feel like, you know, as time went on, because of that bad start, things just carried on getting up on top of it. You know, I, I, won't, I won't say that, Keane should have done what he did because, you know, even it, when he did the uh, documentary with Vieira, uh, I think it's called Best of Enemies. Yeah. I might have, you know, he even said if someone asked what I could change, he he basically said I would have played at the World Cup. I would have said to Mick McCarthy that I'm not playing for you, I'm playing for my country. Mm. And, you know, he should have done that. You can definitely understand the frustrations. I guess it's just the end result that, you know, people won't agree with and would have been disappointed with, especially at the time. Yeah, well, it, nuts to him because Ireland uh, went on to... It was his cousin who equalised in injury time against Germany, Robbie Keane. And then, as I say, Spain needed penalties. The quarterfinals, 1-2, 1-0, 0-0 pens, 1-0 after extra time. The semifinals, 1-0 and 1-0. What exciting football. I mean, were they exciting, those games? Were they a good advert for association football? The the semi-finals, probably, more particularly. For me, there were a lot of, like, brilliant moments. And to be honest, some of the games that were low-scoring were really entertaining. And I think there was definitely a competitive side to it. I think, obviously, where a lot of the smaller... Well, yeah, a lot of the bigger nations didn't make it to the latter stages um, did mean that there was a different sort of flavour because, I mean, you'll know how it is when there's a a blatant underdog in a really important game and they just give absolutely everything that they've got and they try to sort of disrupt the other team and, you know, there's obviously that nervousness and, you know, that sort of sense that we're here and we might not ever get here again. I think there was a lot of that and some purists will say that the football wasn't great, but 
for me personally, I did find it very entertaining because of that. I mean, it, it's just like different, isn't it? I think a lot of World Cups knockout stages can actually be fairly disappointing just because of how much is on the line. But I definitely enjoyed covering the games. Yeah, I suppose I shouldn't talk to you about semi-finals after what happened recently. <laughs> but yeah, well, well yeah. done for getting so deep into that competition, and it it showed the club off to a good light. And uh, again, Berlin's farewell is the first book that Danny wrote. The second one, when Asia welcomed the world, ended up uh, this week, twenty years ago, as this goes out, thirtieth of June, two thousand two. Uh, the final, the German eleven included Didi Harman and Miroslav Klose. I couldn't believe it. Janinho played in a World Cup final. At the beginning of the World Cup, uh, Brazil's captain got injured when he was mucking about in goal. Is that Dunga? So, yes. yes. So Gilberto Silva and Janinho Paulista were their starting midfielders from the start. And I believe that uh, Gilberto Silva hadn't actually made a cap before playing that first game. And Janinho just finished 18th in the Brazilian league. There were actually a lot of worries for Brazil when it started the tournament. But obviously, you know, they just sort of really kicked into gear and they got that late opener against Turkey, which in the first game, I felt sorry for Costa Rica and uh, China because they obviously ended up coming against the two semi-finalists in the group stages. So I'd be feeling pretty hard done by if I was them. But... um, yeah, Brazil were, you know, people talk about the quality of this particular World Cup, but Brazil almost single-handedly made up for it on their own. I mean, the Costa Rica game was one of the most entertaining games I've probably seen for a long time. And they had that overhead kick from Ed Milson, which was oh, yeah. outstanding. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing to say, but I really enjoyed watching Brazil throughout the whole tournament. That was why it was so nice, because after the nonsense of what happened in 98, where it does seem on the balance of probability Nike pushed Ronaldo to play, um, and we'll, we'll hear all about that next year in the 25th anniversary of it all, and in this Ronaldo book that Dan Williamson is writing. But uh, Manchester United signed Cleberson off the back of the World Cup final. Uh, they hadn't done their due diligence. Do you know about Cleberson? Yeah, um... You know, he came off the bench and put in some really good performances for Brazil and then obviously just ended up being a massive flop for Man well, United. Well, apparently it was a Jerry Lee Lewis situation. His wife was a minor and that didn't go down so well in Manchester, wow. I think. I, I, I read that quite recently, I don't know where. But yes, Brazil will be celebrating 20 years this week since they won the World Cup. So expect to see on Thursday, a lot of the Ronaldo goals. I think Ronaldo's written a book, or he's certainly done lots of interviews to do with that final. Yeah, I mean, so one of the interviews that I found really interesting was he spoke to, uh, like, the Brazilian section of ESPN about um, the haircut, Mm. because obviously one just looks back at the haircut. And the reasoning was basically because obviously, you know, he had this injury record and there was so much talk about it. And he did actually have a bit of a knock or some sort of injury. And everyone was basically talking about that and writing about that ahead of, I want to say it was the Turkey game. And so what he did was he did that haircut and he walked into training the next day 
and nobody was talking about his injuries. They were all talking about the haircut. So he basically said, you know, while he's not exactly proud of rocking that haircut, it did the job because everyone stopped talking about that. And, you know, there were there were a couple of points where you could see that, you know, he was struggling a little bit. For example, uh, Linker mm-hmm. hit him a big tackle in the final and Ronaldo wasn't best pleased and he was limping for a couple of minutes. But obviously, you know, unlike in 98, when obviously things were a lot more severe, he was able to get through that and obviously take Brazil to World Cup glory, which is what he will have gone there wanting to do. So, Did you watch Soccer Aid last weekend? Oh, I did. So you would have seen the World Cup winning, well, captain in Dunga's place? <laughs> yeah, um, Cashew being tackled by Mark Noble, my, my two oh, books combined. <laughs> it's brilliant. I wasn't Soccer Aid at West Ham this year? Uh, yeah, it was at London Stadium, mm. and I, I love Mark Noble, but I did find it quite funny because it's probably the first game in his career where he's been one of the fastest players on the pitch. <laughs> and I look forward uh, to his memoir. Danny Lewis is the author of When Asia Welcomed the World, which is out today on pitch. If you hurry, 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 uh, you can get a copy for 15 quid today. Um, and I hope this does well because it's very topical because in the week that there'll be lots of pieces written by journalists who love an anniversary with a zero or a five. So I'm sure you're knee-deep in research. Are you writing about the World Cup 2002 this week for anyone? Uh, I'm not planning on it. I'll probably be um, speaking a few times more, uh, but I haven't got any articles lined up so far. So we'll keep an eye on that Danny Lewis underscore 95 Twitter feed uh, to get... More in-depth information. That's why I majored with West Ham at the start because you'll get sick of talking about your book, um, which which I which I will pick up and I will glance at uh, when Asia welcomed the world. Uh, Asia will welcome the world again in a different way. Uh, maybe you'll be in Qatar. I'll be following your exploits regardless uh, because it's World Cup year, and for those who are in the industry, this is the big tournament and also so many books that you've got to read that you've, you're missing out on as i said earlier jeff shreves michael richards david dean has a book out this autumn very nice yeah and there's there's so many keep your ears glued to the football library but yes you get your football library membership card it does have nobs on it so please come back and use it to look at any books wherever you want i think we've got to finish with some bubbles so uh, do you have a particular version of bubbles that you like at a particular game i suppose it's got to be from the last game at Upton Park yeah the, the last game at Upton Park was definitely the best bubbles that um that I've ever witnessed the Sevilla game was very good as well yeah they're definitely the the top two I'd say because you know there was obviously so much at stake and the more passionate behind the game the better the bubbles is <laughs> yeah the bigger the game the bigger the bubbles Danny thanks so much